Hey, πάμε για καφέ. Μπα, καφέ το λέμε τώρα. This is Bummy Ya Cafe, Haki's own radio show and podcast. On the air, 5pm Tuesdays on 3XY Radio Elas and streaming anytime you like on iTunes and Spotify. Bummy Ya Cafe is all about celebrating ordinary Greeks, Greek Australians, Australians, Hellenes and Philolenes who are doing extraordinary things. Bummy Ya Cafe, μια προσφορά του Haki, το ελληνικό, αυστραλιανό, εμπορικό και βιομηχανικό επιμελητήριο. Welcome to another week of Bamiya Cafe here on 3XY Radio Elas. Uh, my name's Tom Andranis and uh, joining me in the studio, like they do on uh, a weekly occasion, Mr. Alex Ninnis and Mr. Peter Manyaris. Dudes, how are you going? Kalispera. <laughs> All well? Oh, yes. Uh, so, oh, sorry, uh, are we on? Yes, oh. yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'm, I'm, I'm still recovering after uh, a big long weekend, including this you know, Tuesday. <laughs> of of uh, of uh, TV watching. So uh, apologies in advance if I appear a bit. Uh, You've been back to backing some series, have you? Sorry, who am I? Yeah. <laughs> so what have you been watching that's taken over your world? Oh, everything, uh, Tom. Um, every I think I've even even managed to watch some darts over the weekend. But um, geez, that is it. Um, obviously the tennis. Uh, obviously the Euro final. Obviously. The, the Mighty Magpies Copper, winning? Copper America, yes. Well, I'm getting to the Magpies. <laughs> um, a lot of uh, Aussie rules. Um, but, uh, of course, seeing our beloved Magpies beat the, uh, the, the Tigers was just amazing. Um, but, you know, particularly to see Robert Harvey get his, his first win as coach. Fantastic. Which is brilliant. So, um, so yeah, I think, I think it's safe to say that um, uh, there was a cornucopia of... of um, mm. Of, which is a beautiful well, we, word. We had Wimbledon on the weekend as of, well. Of sport. Well, that's mm. Ash Barty. That's what yeah. I'm saying. I'm not. I'm not even mentioning Djokovic because everyone knew he was going to win. <laughs> um, but uh, but he's now equaled um, um, 20, 20 Grand Slams. So he's 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 equaled um, both Rafa and uh, Federer. Isn't so, Federer? I thought Federer was on more than that. Are they all on no, twenty? No, now? All on twenty. Oh, They're all there you on go. 20. There you go. So wow. um, which is fantastic. So well, isn't it interesting how Federer uh, and Nadal are sort of talked about, especially Federer as you know the greatest of all time, and yet here is Djokovic, the the young whippersnapper who's mm. sort of caught them and is going to overtake him because he's so much younger than them. He will definitely overtake them, no yeah. doubt about it. Um, it's funny, you know, because I think because of his name, you know, Djokovic, and everyone calls him the Joker. Yeah, people just don't take him seriously. Do you think? Oh, absolutely, because he's, he's the Joker. But he's but, just lived in their shadows for so long, Rafa and uh, and Roger. Yeah, look, I think uh, you know, look, you know, Roger is Mister Nice Guy, and um, Rafa is 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 the Spanish, you know, the bull, the Spanish bull, and then you know you've got sort of the Joker. So yeah. I think people just don't take him seriously. But he's a, an amazing tennis player. But he's he's um, he's got some interesting th- sort of ideas about life and. COVID and other things. He does, know, so yeah. He's got some interesting... Let's not go there. Yeah. But, um, but isn't so. it great that, um, you know, uh, of the sample of Australian women who have won Wimbledon, which yep. I think is four, mm. uh, 50% are Indigenous women. It's incredible. Um, That's fantastic. So who, who are they? Uh, well, Ash Barty and Ivan Gulagong. I didn't know Ash Barty was Indigenous. Yes, she yes. is. 
Oh, is that right? That's the whole oh. play at the moment, yeah. yeah. Is that why, why she, she had such a yeah. fantastic relationship with Yvonne Gulliver? Yeah. Yeah. She's a, a mentor of hers, yeah. Wow, okay, well, there you go. I'm, I'm, uh, you can knock me over with a feather duster, <laughs> honestly. I didn't know that, but um, that's brilliant. Um, oh, look, she's, um, she's wonderful. You know, and then we have the PC. I wish she was Greek. I wish she was Greek. Sorry. Yeah, the complete opposite. Who's the fourth? Uh, I can't remember her name. Someone told me about it yesterday, but I Mm. I can't. It was was before Margaret Court. Well, it was definitely not Margaret Court. So, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, I think it was actually. There was Margaret was one of them. Was Margaret Court's Aboriginal too? No, she won Wimbledon. Oh yes. Oh my god! Oh my god! How are you going there, Alex? Having a good morning? I'm having a very. I'm struggling, uh, Tom. <laughs> I'm, I'm struggling. In fact, there there should be a royal commission. Um, we should start this segment. What should there be a royal commission? The royal commissions we need. Yeah, there should be a royal commission into having too many sporting events on a weekend. <laughs> um, the other one. Do you I, know the only one I watched was actually the Tour de France, which you haven't mentioned yet. That's the only sporting event I actually sat down and watched this weekend. How, how do you yeah. watch the cycling? How, how can you sit there and watch? I find it just cycling their I bike. I find it mesmerising. Yeah. I love it. No, I know it. many people that yeah. love it, but I, I don't get it. I don't, it's, not, it's not like I stay up all night and watch it, but it's the sort of thing that like we sit down after dinner, we watch an episode of something, <laughs> and then just before we go to bed, we stick the, fl- the cycling on for you know, 20, 30 minutes and right. just watch them yeah. pedalling, look at the French countryside, right, right, you know, right. listen to the jibber-jabber, and uh, yeah, it's a really good like pre-bed routine. I, I just love the uh, the announcer. I forget his name. Russell Dalrymple or what's his name? I don't know. Who are you talking about? Uh, the 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 uh, the announcer of the um of the cycling. Um, the Australian? No, no, he's an Englishman. Oh, I don't know. Oh, okay. Okay. I thought you did because no. you watched the uh, because you watched the cycling. Well, I watch it on SBS. I don't watch it on the BBC. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll remember his name by the end of the show. <laughs> <laughs> No, fair enough. Yeah, that's the only thing uh, I actually watched. But um, you, you did you did you head down to Ligon Street to watch the uh, the soccer? I was. Uh, I remember 1982 when the the Italians did their um, did the, the World Cup win, yes. and, and it was going crazy. That, but that's back in the day when you can do burnouts with your <laughs> your GTS Monaros and all sorts of your, your, your purple valiants and all that sort of thing. Yeah, but uh, I, I must admit, yeah, the whole Euro- European Cup finals and and what have you you know obviously it's a really tough year but it, it sort of brought us back to like uh greece winning 2004 which was just an extraordinary yeah, yeah. you know sporting story but how, how much heartbreak uh the, Eng- the english team you know getting so close in their hometown to have this final mm. after uh, the only other time in um, in world cup soccer to be 1966 and to be right there yeah, anyway so so that the british catch cry was you know it's coming home yeah had it ever been there have they ever actually won the Euros before? No, uh, no, 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 right. No, so, no. so when they say it's coming home, like it's never, it's like well, you know, it's, it's like Peter saying you're coming being, home to my house. Like that's being stupid. Arrogant to say we made up soccer uh-huh. and now it's we're gonna it's coming home for oh. us to actually be the champions of well, it. Oh, so they're, therefore they technically own every trophy. Exactly, you know, uh-huh. colonialism. You know I, I, I don't know if they actually <laughs> invented soccer. I'm sure it would probably would have been. Uh, some people, you know, on the island of Trinidad and Tobago, kicking a coconut, and then <laughs> one of the guys. Well, says, apparently they put the rules that's a, together. That's is what a fantastic saying. little yeah. toy, Darren. Yeah. I don't think yeah. it was the Irish. That well, <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> it has been a very, very long couple of days. But, um, yeah, but I, I liked, I liked the Italian response, which was, "It's coming Rome." Yeah, which was right. I think that's pretty yeah. cool. As well. Very clever. Oh, I've got to say, my father, um, you know, he. He always had a, an issue with the Italians because of, of the war. And he always used to call them the spaghettis. Oh, yeah. And uh, so I could, I could just see Dad, you know, if he was alive, he would have been 
very very upset. But I've got a lot of Italian friends, and um, you know, I've been texting. And I've got know, a lot of Italian friends too. Yeah, Tortellini, I, spaghetti, Bucatini, yeah, the whole lot. Fettuccine is my yeah. favourite. Yeah. Uh, I think he plays. Uh, I think he plays on the wing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> for Italy, um, but uh, as I said, I, I think there should be a. Uh, we're talking about royal commissions. There should be a royal commission into uh, into the Italian diving uh, oh, exhibition. Gosh. Um, I just, you know, when I saw it's been Chiesa, you know, on the ground writhing, you know, in, in agony, and I just thought to myself, you know, imagine I could just imagine all the Aussie rules supporters saying, "Oh God, you know, you know, there he is, you know, our guys, you know." play with one arm missing and, and these guys are sort of writhing because of a little sort of, you know, little tap on the shin. Mm. Uh, but anyway, that's that's it. But there should definitely be a, a Royal Commission to that, as well as a Royal Commission into uh, Anastasia Palchuk's name. <laughs> I, I, I don't understand how you get Palaszczuk from Palchuk. Can, can someone explain that to me? Yeah, well, I mean, no. No. <laughs> I mean, you know... There should be you should you know there are there are a certain number of syllables and you should be able to say Palaszczuk does not come out of that spelling, no. So I, I I definitely want a royal commission into that name. Yeah. Well, we can finally talk about football again, though. Oh well, if you're finally Collingwood won a game. Well, yeah. So. Yeah. Uh, you know, against, against Richmond. I think <laughs> we've done it twice now. We've actually taken Richmond out of being, being able to win a premiership back in 18 and I think 21. So you think you've put something. the nail in Richmond's coffin, I do you? I think so, yeah. Well, what are they? I think like they're about 12th or something now. <laughs> the ladder. Back where they belong. We're back where they belong. Yeah. Outside of the 8th. Outside outside the yeah. Yeah, they'll finish ninth. you know. Again. Back to yeah, back yeah, to yeah. where they belong, which is uh, it's quite... I was saying, you know, off air before that I don't even, I didn't even bother watching the football uh, anymore because well. I just assume we're going to win. Yeah, well, yes. that's... Uh, it's a nice position for a Melbourne <laughs> supporter to be in. It's a lovely position. A very yeah. foreign uh, uh, feeling. I remember those those days, Peter, you know, when we used to win every week and then we just lose the grand final. That's <laughs> right. I, I do remember 2011 and uh, sadly, because, like, you know, we, we you'd never been in this position, but, like, yeah, you didn't care who you were playing because you just knew you were going to square it off. Yeah. But we could, couldn't beat one team that year and we lost all three games to them. So mm. Mm, not so mm. much fun. Mm. Hey, in, guys, 2010, uh, in 2010, when you played... You played St Kilda, St. Kilda I think, yeah, in, the, in, in the, the grand prim- final. Yeah, grand I was actually in Germany, and so we had to um, we had to find somewhere that would let us watch the AFL grand final at you know four o'clock in the morning yes, or whatever yes. it was. And so I was staying with a friend of mine in Ulm, which is like an hour and a half out of both Munich and Stuttgart. So we had to get on the train at three o'clock in the morning to Stuttgart to go and watch it in an Australian bar there. Yes. And then you bloody drew. So we had to do it again the next Saturday. We had to find another bar to go to, this time in Munich. So uh, we had to do it twice. It's the draw was actually in incredibly surreal. Like, yeah. Um, you know, because there was all this, uh, you know. Anyway, I sat, I sat in my seat for another maybe 40 minutes after just that. Crying. Just crying. No, they're just sitting there and just taking it all in because, like, everyone was just, like, stunned. It was just like, what's going on here, you know? Um, and I think the momentum was definitely with St Kilda there. We yeah. would have been done. But, like, uh, it's just like, what? The rules have been changed now, haven't they? You can't draw a grand final anymore. No. You no. have time on. No. Yeah, time, time on. Golden goal. Is there golden goal? Not golden goal. No. I was, I was actually no. thinking the um, the final of the European Cup, whether a golden goal after the time on would have been better than penalties. Penalties is always awful. I reckon a golden oh. goal instead of penalties. But there was a World Cup that, that they had golden goal at, and I think that's the one where Senegal made it through about, yeah. you know, to the, the – semi-finals or something like that on a couple of golden goal wins and I there was uproar about yeah, it. Yeah, that's that did change the rules on that. And then yeah. that, now they have time on, which is an extra 30 minutes, which is fine for the time on bit. But if you can't even have a result after time on, I'm thinking 
golden goal is the trick. But just penalties, are, you know, they add such drama does, to the, you know, it does. to the and heartbreak. Yeah, exactly right. And the pictures are great. The stories are great. You know, yeah, depending okay. on who right. you support. But yeah, you know, the yeah. penalties, penalties the are poor, pretty good. The poor player that actually misses the penalty. That's that's the heartbreak. And oh, that could be a champion player. You get paid millions of dollars, just be better. Yeah. <laughs> you know, no, I, 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 as you do, you always blame someone else. You blame the coach, you, you blame the ball, you blame the spot on which the ball is placed, <laughs> you blame anyone else. But guys, look, let, let's, uh, let's digress for oh. a moment. Um, I'm, just a about to make, I'm just about to make a very big pronouncement on mm. Bamiaka because we are a uh, Hellenic Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. And uh, the pronouncement I'm about to make um, is that the five-day office week is dead. Oh, long live, Long live the hybrid model. Mm. Um, what is the hybrid model, you may ask? I didn't. Well, okay. <laughs> so it is basically a um, um, couple of days at home, a couple of days in the office, mm. and maybe one day doing something completely different. Mm-hmm. This is where we're heading towards. Oh, so no doubt. Um, and um, there was a an article in, in yesterday's uh, paper, The Age, which actually got um, a number of um, companies to actually comment on that. Yeah. And they were in violent agreement. Well, I, th- um, I think it makes perfect sense. And I think, we, you know, we've got a, a guest coming on today who's a stati- statistician and, and works a little bit in those uh, those areas, and I'd be interested to ask him what he thinks uh, about something like that. But it's an absolute no-brainer. And, like, Peter, you you run a business, you've got an office, mm. uh, it's empty. Yes, today, um, which is Tuesday. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so we come in Tuesdays, Wednesdays, Thursdays when we can, so yeah. when we're out of lockdown, because um, people do want to be able to get – Get together, but like, um, I, 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 I do like a, a hybrid model, and I would personally prefer like um, working from home and then getting together every fortnight and having a big long lunch as we did last <laughs> Friday and hanging out with people in a, in a sort of more social sense. Where was Aria uh, in the invite? afternoon? Well, you're part of a business, yeah, okay, intimately, yeah, but like, yeah. Um, um c- can I just <laughs> say though, uh, how unfair is that? What's that? If well, just say you work uh, in a takeaway shop or a subway or a McDonald's. I mean, you can't cook burgers from home. No, you can. <laughs> well, how? If you really want to. Well, I suppose if you if you had robotic sort of uh, burger flippers, it is, or it something, is, it and you and you and yeah. you were able to sort of control them remotely. Yeah, like a surgeon. Yeah. yeah, but it's it's okay if you if you're an office worker. Maybe that will incentivize people to strive harder at school so they can get a job that. Requires you to be in the office, <laughs> um, because I've got to be honest with you. You know, um, maybe they should, you know, look at some sort of robotic automation for, um, you know, for careful for what you wish for. <laughs> yeah, careful well, what you wish. It's for. interesting that I mean we've been in the workforce for a little while, so we understand we we understand what it takes to work. You know, five days a week and hours and all that type of thing. But the, but the younger generation, I'm sort of seeing, getting a bit of feedback of like um, where they, they they're not able to go into the office and I've got some people that are in you know tier one companies that have been told don't come back to the office at all for a mm. period of time that are freaking out because like that whole mm. cultural uh, immersion sort of interacting with people is a big deal of their growth of like um, of them understanding how to how to, how to go do different things um, but yeah um, hot off the presses we're, we're seeing our Nordic friends um, having done this sort of stuff for quite some time and uh, apparently in Iceland it's been working a treat for, for quite some time in that yep. sort of four day week yep. well, yeah uh, absolutely. Going, going back to our um, uh, you know royal commissions that we require I think we, there should be a royal commission to the, the working week um, <laughs> and to really really analyse this because this could be life changing for all of us 
Well, who doesn't want a three-day weekend every week? Uh, well, or a four-day weekend, if you don't mind. Yeah, you know, exactly I mean, right. at the end of the day, uh, what is a weekend? Does the weekend... I mean, I, I was actually doing... Oh, now we're getting existential. Does the weekend even exist? <laughs> well, it well, doesn't, exactly. because you see, those of us that are in business or in senior positions, we're, we're firing off emails at all hours of the night and, and all hours of the weekend. 24-7. So, 24-7. Mm-hmm. We are open for... We are like uh, 7-Eleven, <laughs> which is an unfortunate <laughs> name for a business, because... <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it is open, uh, but I think it's open 24 hours, not 7-Eleven. <laughs> you know what I mean? But, you uh, know, if there's some good that can be coming out of what we've been going through, yeah, that, that notion for people that haven't experienced it before of having a true blend of, like, whatever fam- home life is for them or family life intertwined with things that are outside of that to actually either make money or to have, you know, uh, a feeling of, like, you know, being able to achieve things – that's more intertwined. And for a lot of people, it's the first time they've actually been able to blend it. And that some people have struggled with that because it's been all their lives, either mm. one way or the other. Um, yeah. But our friends up in Sydney are not doing so great at the moment, obviously. They're, uh, they're in full, full lockdown now, from what we can see, to, to manage what's going on with like, um, uh, the virus spreading up there. Yeah, well, our guest today, who I'll introduce in just a moment uh, after the break, uh, has a fair bit of insight as to what's going on there and, and what might happen over the next little while. And I look forward to asking that question and we'll do that on the other side of the break this is uh Bamiyaka Fair and you're listening to it either on 3xy or on the podcast which is available via spotify and itunes we're going to take a quick break and we'll be back in just a moment this is Bamiyaka Fair on 3xy and uh we're joined in the studio today by somebody who knows a lot about numbers and the future and uh, predicting it and I'm looking forward to seeing uh, what he has to say about where we're headed to over the next little while. His name is John Marinopoulos. He's a statistician and consultant to uh, many government agencies. John, thank you for joining us. Thanks very much. No worries. Hey, um, we mentioned just before the break that our uh, our cousins north of the border uh, in Sydney aren't having a great time of, uh, of COVID at the moment. Um, tell us a little bit about, about what, you know, your involvement with COVID has been over the last 18 months as a numbers guy. It's the involvement we all don't want, but right. that's another story. <laughs> yeah, well, that's um, right. No, we, uh, like last year, uh, during our wonderful lockdown that we had, a lockdown version two, I was talking to Alex, by the way, and he was saying to me, let's be prepared for lockdown number five. And mm. I thought to myself, if we get into that stage, we're in a bit of worry. But during lockdown two, one of the things that I was doing for a long time to many people in government and also um, a number of people in the sort of the corporate community was actually putting forward a, a, an important uh, forecast in terms of all the where we were going with our COVID numbers, when we could actually see them receding, when we could start getting back to normality. And there's so many different statistics about all those areas that are very important. But uh, one of the key things that's going to be the bit of a problem at the moment in New South Wales is very much about the fact that they don't understand that this is not a circuit breaker. Mm. This is going to be a lockdown with a long tail that's actually going to extend continuously in terms of how it goes forward. And this is a, um, it's important because what it means for you know, the whole of Australia, I mean, at the moment, we estimated that we're losing probably $100 million a, a week in Victoria when we were in lockdown. Yeah. New South Wales is a bigger part of the economy, so it's probably closer to about, uh, you know, it'll be, uh, sorry, $100 million a day. Um, New South Wales is about a billion dollars a week. And so that comes off wow. our GDP and also then comes off, you know, how we, our overall communities in terms of how they work together. And the more of this sort of lockdown that we've actually got, the harder it is because what we're finding is that uh, we, would, you know, I was listening to sort of some of the conversation before in regards to how people are working. We've got this thing at the moment where COVID's actually built this um, concept of narrow cast. Like a lot of people, actually, especially younger people in the office, they don't understand now how to interact with a lot of people and collaborate. 
And so quite often it's actually only a one-to-one relationship that they're doing, which is actually making life a bit difficult. So it's taken a long time for us in Victoria to actually start coming out of that, whether it's personal relationships, it's actually going to be about community relationships and also about the workplace relationships. And so um, these uh, the numbers there, I think I'm probably going to actually start doing that one for New South Wales again. I, I did want to do it again, but I think I will because... Mm. The, that, that long tail and the lack of prediction that's out there. At the moment, you know, we're seeing over the last week, New South Wales is, you know, almost probably one and a half times the numbers every day. And um, I haven't checked today's numbers, so my apologies about that. Um, but, you know, it's been one of those ones which is it builds a fear factor throughout mm-hmm. the community. And one of the things is being able to have a view of where you can actually see a prediction of how it can change and when a tail might come out and when we can actually start transitioning back to a little bit of normality, it, it makes a massive difference. And I found with a lot of the my clients and also people in government at senior levels, when they could actually do that, they could start making active decisions again. Because the problem is a lot of people are now going into a stasis. They don't know how to move, what to do. So the more we can do to be able to help people get clear predictions in terms of where we've got to go, the better it is. I, I will tell you now, I mean, as we know in Victoria and our northern cousins will are now starting to realise it is a quite a fearful time. Mm. And... Um, and they've got to realise now... In fact, the best thing that said, was said to me recently about all of this is that we've got to stop calling this social distancing. We sort of forgot about it because we've had a bit of a break in Victoria about it. But they, um, I've had a number of people that I've spoken to who were sort of, as they were stepping into this lockdown approach, I said, it's got to be about physical distancing, not social distancing. Mm. Engage socially, broaden out your social networks and be able to go progress forward. It makes a big difference. So last year when, when Victoria went through this... Uh issue of you know the, the protracted long da- lockdown i think it was was it 16 weeks in the end or something yep. you know that we, that we had lockdown there was no blueprint for that no. now there is a blueprint you know because we did it uh how how does that from your perspective how does that lived experience of victoria last year how does it assist you in understanding what's likely to happen in in new south wales now well so when you look at the markers of when we actually started wearing masks compared to the number of cases per day compared to the number of cases under investigation that uh, was quite significant. We actually wore masks probably four weeks after when New South Wales was meant to wear masks. Um, also, the lockdown that we had, remember we had a stage three lockdown, then we started locking down suburbs, and then we went to a stage four lockdown. Our stage three lockdown is essentially what they've got, or they've got a bit of a stage three plus in New South Wales. That didn't work to actually calm the actual peak. And so New South Wales um, has got... There will be a tightening. It'll, we already saw it on the weekend when they went to... 10-kilometre radius for activity. Um, but what they're going to have to find is that un- unless they keep that or they build that tightening in, that peak will keep on going up. So we had a double whammy in Victoria, and that was the lesson learned. Um, stage, I'm not a massive advocate of curfews, but unfortunately it seemed like a lot of those things. But we had a mask, stage four, curfew, all of those things together were building a suppression strategy. Mm. The question's going to be in New South Wales if they actually want to have a suppression strategy. So... Um, at the moment, Brad Hazard, I think the uh, Minister for Health over there, said that uh, we're going to have to live with it in our communities and it's going to have to be something akin to what they got in the UK, which is getting close to 100,000 cases a day. But the difference is their hospitalisation levels are acceptable because, remember, we all started COVID by flattening the curve. Mm. That's the reason why we actually wanted people to get away from the offices and de- increase their physical distancing. Um, in the UK, they have flattened the curve because they've got now enough ICU beds, they've got enough normal beds, the death rate's roughly in line with what you'd expect from flu and pneumonia. Um, and so, therefore, it becomes, a, you know, the issue now is if they keep on vaccinating as they are in the UK, 
then what you'll find is that it'll allow um, all the other parties to be able to, you know, sort of everyone to say, yep, we've got it, but we're actually just going to get better. But what, I mean, what the what you've just referred to there, the New South Wales Health Minister saying we have to live with it in our community, that relies on a significantly higher vaccination Absolutely. rate, doesn't it? You know, what, what are we sitting at at the moment? About 4 or 5% maybe. Oh, I've, I've greater than 16-year-olds. We're at about, in Victoria, we're close to 12% now. Okay. Um, we're double vaccinated? Double vaccinated. Uh-huh. Uh, we're going up about point. I think it's point five percent per day. Double vaccinated. Right. Okay. Um, it's so still not herd immunity. No, of course not. I mean, you know, and the problem is, I mean, the UK is talking about sixty percent. Mm. Uh, we're talking about eighty yeah. percent. So once again, we're putting these other thresholds in place. But you know, what amazes me is when you say, you know, the UK goes, "Oh, look, we can actually have you know sixty thousand people at Wembley," mm. and you go, "Yeah, well, we had you know fifty thousand people at the grand final last year." We actually had all the activity going on outside of Victoria in the whole of Australia yeah. because we had taken an approach because we could. We were an island nation. We could actually close off our borders. and it, But it's only fine for a certain amount of time. So we're now in that almost like that no man's land, which is do you suppress and keep yourself away or do you actually now start wearing the number of people that can actually get sick and die and be able to progress forward? Yeah. I mean, it really comes into perspective when you look at something which is the Queensland Chief Health Officer where she said, I don't want to give AstraZeneca to any young kid because they're going to have a chance of dying, you know, because one in a million people die. So if you just put the rough numbers in place and say, okay, well, what does that really mean? Well, that would be the equivalent of four people dying in, or maybe five people dying in Queensland, which, you know, would you say, okay, well, what does that mean? But only seven people died from COVID in Queensland anyway. Take the UK example, 70 million people, 70 people dying from AstraZeneca, against 125,000 people dying. Lady that goes off and develops AstraZeneca gets applauded at Wimbledon. Here we think she's the devil incarnate. <laughs> so which one is it? It's all a matter of perspective, it isn't is. it? Yeah, absolutely. And that's why, you know. And then you've got all the issues in regards to you know the whole point about Pfizer. You know, we heard on the weekend with you know potential representations by Kevin Rudd on behalf of the not on behalf of the Australian government, but to be able to get those extra vaccines. Um, I think that's a really important part to be able to understand that. Governments have to realise that in this time, they actually have to operate in a way which is you know, collaboratively with different groups like Pfizer and others. Mm. And you know, do you know that at the moment, to give you an idea, we're paying $50 approximately, I think for 40 million doses, Australia is paying $1 billion. Yep. So that's essentially $50 Australian a dose. That's all being provided to the community free of charge under our Therapeutic Goods Administration. But, you know, this is where we've got to be you know, significantly careful because JobKeeper vaccines, all those other things like that, this starts becoming a significant impact on our kids and the next generation, next generation. We can't just kick the can down the road mm-hmm. and hope that it's all going to get better. Governments Sorry. are pretty good at that, though. I was going to say, John, I mean, um, we have a Greek leading um, Pfizer. We've got Meson. Why aren't we using that Meson? <laughs> <laughs> I mean... Well, I don't know. Let, let's give him a ring, Alex. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> but, yeah. I mean, you know, someone should... Hey, Ella. Feel it. must there. Feel it. Well, well, maybe they did because the Greeks are about 50% vaccinated or 55% vaccinated, double vaccinated. Yeah, Yeah. I tell you what. So, but look, you're talking about Royal Commissions before. I know we're doing it in sort of uh, in a humorous fashion. In jest. In jest. But um, really, uh, I cannot believe how low our vaccination rates are in Australia. I mean, when you consider what the US has done in the matter of 100 days, um, we are floundering. Yeah. I mean, talking about raw commissions, I mean, there's two parts to that. One is going to be exactly, well, there's three parts to it. One, the use of funds by the government for 
you know, whether JobKeeper was the right wrong way of doing things because there's got to be lessons learned going forward. The second thing is going to be also the other part about it is what happens with the states? How can we actually close the borders? Do we actually have a federation now? The third one is going to be the utilisation of our Therapeutic Goods Administration, our chief health officers, how they're all working together, what do vaccines mean, how can we vaccinate people? Because, you know, to give you an idea, sort of um, epidemics like this and uh, you know, pandemics are actually occurring probably every five to six years. In 2013, 14, we had Ebola, um, then you had av- you know, Asian flu, oh, sorry, avian flu, and you also had a bird flu before that, I think it was uh, 2003, so roughly every time really depends on a lot of the ways in which you find the type of leaders around the world collaborate together to be able to see how they can suppress this very quickly. I mean, you know, the question's always going to be around how COVID actually spread in the community, which is, I think, a broader you know, issue, and that is, was it just a confluence of events that we actually had um, a number of, let's call it, you know, yeah, old white men looking after different countries like Trump, Bolsonaro, mm. uh, we had, you know, Boris Johnson, various other people in terms of those sort of groups, Putin, whatever. And what they did was that there was a sort of, you know, how many times did you hear, oh, it's just a cold, move along. Oh, you know, drink bleach, move along. Yeah, well. And all of those sort of, you know, use these alternate therapies. And, you know, we're now actually seeing that uh, in Indonesia at the moment. I mean, Indonesia, I've got, lucky I've got friends there. And, you know, they're telling me it's actually horrendous. But, you know, at this point in time, they're now actually balancing up and saying, We've got to balance, you know, the number of people dying with the economy. Yeah, we're actually they're not in the same situation we are. So, um, this is where we've got to really look at how we can actually then start building that suppression. So there's statistics and there's st- statistics, <coughs> um, and we can make all sorts of things look like what we want as an outcome. How do how do you use statistics and how is that presented with you know the the sort of work that you do? that allows for, like, really robust decision-making in areas like, you know, what's happening around COVID, but, but in, in the other things that you do as well. How, how do you sort of put a, a, a guiding line in utilising statistics in, in a way? Or, or, is it, or is it, again, based on ideology? No, it's, it's not based on ideology. It's based on a lot of different measures there, you know, to be able to analyse, you know, what's the predictive power of a lot of the tests you're doing. Um, with a lot of the work around COVID, I thought, you know, we see a whole bunch of epidemiologists who are, do use a lot of statistics with a medical bent in terms of that to be able to then say, oh, this is a strategy. Quite often a lot of the, uh, what they're doing is from a lot of given formulae and they apply those to be able to get an outcome, oh, this is the R rate, you know, this is the infection, this is what it'll actually be, oh, this will be, you know, this many weeks before it can actually go out. Um, and, you know, if we've got to diminish one, you know, sort of the, the number of people interacting with the others... Um, in terms of the work that I do in with uh, infrastructure funding, financing, we do a lot of work in things like uh, resilient infrastructure now for the federal government, which is a and climate change. You know, how can we actually fund resilient infrastructure? How can we actually understand if you actually someone funds it, they can actually then start look. You know, knowing that they're going to recover the money from this, um, that requires a lot of very robust statistics about uh, what's the amenity, what's the benefit to all those communities. How do I actually understand that it's not going to be what we call collinear? That means, you know, it could be, you know, one thing or another. A good example of that, right, would be um, you look at something like a train station. Someone goes, I'm going to put a tram here. Um, is there any more value of having a tram there compared to the train? There actually isn't in Victoria. It's like buses the same. Or, but if I go off and I say, I'm now going to go put an aquatic centre within 100 metres of your house, that's actually new amenity. That then translates to the property of your home and then you've got other mechanisms that can actually calculate. But you've got to be able to backcast that 20 years and for- to forecast the forward 30 years. Mm. 
Um, so you need to go off and do all those sort of methods to be able to understand how to be able to do that. Uh, the hardest part is always uh, you've got to be able to show a longevity of being able to go off and be yeah, have the prediction and that prediction has actually worked and it's manifested and people can actually, in my case, in terms of funding on a long-term basis with super funds and governments and others, you've got to be able to show that that's actually manifested correctly and people can see it. I mean, some of the ones that we've had are you know, large-scale buildings in Victoria, um, in New Zealand we've done major pieces of work, Malaysia. Uh, it's been amazing to be able to see that you know, when you actually go back and say this is what's going to happen over the next 10 years, you can actually see it. And that's where you're right. Statistics are statistics and people can actually prove them. It really comes down to what is it all constituted of from. And one of the key things we keep on saying to people is there's too much analysis from a top-down approach. Oh, that's a number. Now let's go calculate some sub-numbers from it. Understand what the core root of the data is and then you can start calculating up from there. So you go back to the issue of COVID. Right? You've got to understand what makes the type of people, You know, what's the infection level, who's actually getting infected, where they exist, what they can do. And then what it's actually, yeah, how will it actually change over time rather than just going off and saying, oh, it'll be this curve. So just before we move on from the COVID conversation, I want to and delve into what you actually do on a daily basis. Um, two absolutely rapid fire questions. I assume you've done some numbers around uh, how long Sydney's lockdown is going to last. So if you had to give us a, a, a number of weeks, how long do you reckon they're going to be in, in lockdown or some sort of lockdown for? Oh, some sort of lockdown? Um, Let's go with the type of lockdown they're in at the moment. My view was it's got to be a minimum of six weeks from now. Six weeks, right. So they're in strife up in up in Sydney. Yep. Um, They've already done you know, two and a half to three weeks or whatever it is. Yeah. So another, another, another six. six yeah, weeks. so we're looking at at least sort of nine, ten weeks. Yeah, it'll and be, uh, yeah somewhere around there, yeah. Yep. And the other question is, uh, we mentioned the vaccination rate before. Um, when do you think, you know, with the current state of play, we're going to reach that 80% threshold in Australia? Oh, look, the 80% threshold is really hard to predict. And the reason I'm saying that is because um, at the moment, we're roughly, uh, I think our second dose vaccination is about 3% a week it's going up by. You know, you're, you're talking at the moment we're about 11 to 12% in Victoria, age 16 and over. So if you said to yourself that, oh, well, we'll take that 3% and we'll calculate it all the way through, to get to 80%, you need, uh, what is it, 20, 21 weeks, 22 weeks. Right. And you say, okay, well, 22 weeks, if you took it from this half a year, so it's roughly December. The problem that we've got is that the number of people that are actually getting first vaccination at the moment is actually diminishing. Not diminishing, but it's actually slowing down. So it's because either supply or people that are not wanting to go off and get that first vaccination. And also we've now got our cohort, which is our sort of less than 40, which is still not getting vaccinated because they've got the, you know, the you can do the AstraZeneca but only by going to your doctor mm. rather than having it as a hub mentality where they can walk in. You know, if we had the consistent rate where we could actually push forward in terms of getting people up to about 60%, that could probably happen by the end of September, but it's the last 20% that's actually going to be really hard because you've got to get a lot of the people that are reticent to get it. You're going to have to get a lot of people that are in that, you know, that know that they'll actually be sick in the first couple of weeks. And at the moment, Pfizer, by the way, has also been... Um, there's an issue at the moment where there's a view that it's starting to have provide health uh, heart issues. Mm. So you know, not a, all these drugs, all these vaccines, they're not all on their own. And they, you know, you've got the the blood clotting, and you've got a bit of heart issue here. We've got to accept those that are going to be the fact. No vaccine is ever going to be foolproof. Yeah. So that's I think one of the issues in terms of that timing. We're going to take a quick break. We're chatting with uh, John Maranopoulos, who's a statistician and consultant on all. Uh, 
variety of, uh, of things to government and others. Uh, this is Pamiya Cafe. You're listening on 3XY at Radio Lash. You can also catch it on the uh, podcast, which is Spotify and iTunes. We'll be back in just a moment. <laughs> You're listening to Pamiya Cafe here on 3XY and and on the podcast via Spotify and iTunes. We're chatting with John Marinopoulos, who's a statistician and consultant. We've spent a bit of time talking about COVID, which is not actually what you do, you know, on a daily basis. So, so give us, you know, the quick rundown, John, of, of what you actually use numbers to do. Oh, well, that's a good, it's a good question. You've got, um, you know, what, what are the key things we focus on using the numbers is actually, as I briefly touched on before, um, predicting the benefit that will actually come from infrastructure. Um, and it goes away from sort of that whole idea of economic benefit to actually direct benefit um, because it's one of the hardest parts we had in the past was um, the overall view, oh, you know, sort of a job for this or the amount of money I've got to spend in the economy. It was quite often government had to spend money. But going forward, there's a lot more, people, a lot more private industry that's actually got to spend money. I mean, we had a, you had a bit of a laugh about, you know, superannuation funds and other things like that we were talking about before. But um, super funds are a massive resource of funds in Australia. And at the moment, they're a latent pool that's not being used to be able to go off and do things in you know, providing the infrastructure that we need. Whether it's going to be you know, roads, trains, it's going to be about hospitals or other things like this. Um, but they, they want to get a return. They're not like government who actually says, my return comes from the betterment to my economy. They want a direct return. So a lot of the things we actually have done is over the last 10, 12 years, we've been focusing on direct attribution of revenue and uplift and how a lot of those private groups can actually see how they can recover that. And be able to work with government to be able to go forward. So, a lot so of is it when, when when we hear a you know a, a premier or an infrastructure minister stand up in front of a press conference and say this project is going to return eighty five cents in the dollar? Is that is that what you're doing? No, no, that's more an economic benefit right. piece. That's the you know cost benefit ratio of 0.85. That's the yeah. eighty five cents in the dollar. Um, what we look at is things like okay, well, have this number of developments that will occur there. What's actually going to be that uplift? So you've got a base at the moment and how it changes. But we're also now moving this towards climate change infrastructure, resilient infrastructure. Not so much an issue in Victoria, uh, a greater issue around Australia. So um, you know, you look at the bushfires. Uh, I was in the Bega Valley uh, in the Shire, you know, around Marimbula, Bega. You know, small. It's a small Shire of six and a half thousand square kilometres, mm. if you can believe that. <laughs> Um, but they've gone through seven natural disasters in 18 months. So drought, flood. I was there when a, a natural disaster was occurring as well recently. Um, fire, through you know, the big fires that we had, if everyone forgot about those. Well, yeah, uh, drowned but, into the COVID abyss, those, yes, those bushfires, exactly. yeah. Remember when everyone, the smoke happened about a year and a yeah. half ago? Um, you know, I was in a town called Cabago that actually recently had to get a, a whole raft of money out of government. Uh, but, you know, what we've been working on at the moment, we're doing a lot of work with the federal government and CSIRO over the last uh, 24 months in terms of how we can actually start uh, building the frameworks that other groups can actually utilise to help fund a lot of that climate change infrastructure or that climate change support for that infrastructure or how it's and make those communities res- resilient. And you see a lot of that in places like where they've got seawall inundation. So we're doing a lot of work in Port Adelaide. Um, you know, Port Adelaide's an area the government turns around generally says, oh, we don't have to worry about it because it's all fine, but we're building our frigates there, we're building our submarines, and they've got nothing to stop the floods coming in from the sea walls in terms of how it rises, but also the events of flooding like storms and other things like this. So, you know, you suddenly get a couple of those factories going down and, you know, you've got a massive number of people that won't be in work. Um, but it's also the other people on the other side of the peninsula. So it'll affect... Um, Victoria is actually quite well developed in terms of that, but the areas like Fisherman's Bend that we're now looking at developing are going to be highly susceptible to a lot of the resilient infrastructure. I mean, the city of Melbourne, um, yeah, some of the modelling we've seen is actually you know, dire in terms of what it actually does, in terms of the number of 
you know, what's going to happen. So we're building a lot of work, working with the climate change scientists and others to be able to look at adaptation, how you can actually change it, what sort of funding you need, how you can actually drive that forward. And that's where the predictive nature of funding comes out. Well, um, explain that to us. So like in Melbourne CBD or around the Docklands area, how would you go about even understanding or collecting data and making assumptions around that? What's what's the process that you do? Well, there's a, a lot of the work that's actually picking up a lot of the stormwater work. Bureau of Met's done a, a raft of work around you know, river heights and also seawall levels, etc. And then you've got you know, broader things. Uh, the Climate Research Centre in um, Hobart for the CSIRO actually has prediction models going out 40 to 50 years, actually, sorry, up to 80 years, so they can understand what the impact's going to be in terms of those different groups. And then it becomes an issue of um, how does that actually start building flooding? So there's hydrologists that go off and do the assessment of those to be able to work out what that impact is. So they look at where the water levels will rise. You also have to understand a lot of things around the risk, and that is... Um, what level of risk are we willing to accept? Is it one in 100, one in 50, one in 20 years, one in 10 years? The areas out in, you know, the biggest one that we actually see now is in Sydney around the Warragamba Dam, which is their main water source in Sydney. And, you know, they're saying, oh, look, it's probably going to flood or not, won't flood. We'll have a drought or we won't have a drought. And so what we'll do is we'll just raise the height of the dam. And everyone goes, oh, what are you doing? I used the phrase before, you're just kicking the can down the road for another generation. And, you know, because the problem that you've got in that area, which we don't have in Victoria, we're lucky, but Fishman's Bend will be um, suffering from this, is evacuation. When you flood, how do you get people out? And had you know, when a limited number of roads, how many roads come out of Fishman's Bend? Two. And seriously, with the number of people they're looking at putting down there, which is, you know, 40,000, 50,000 people, plus jobs, plus you know, 80,000 jobs there on a daily basis, you suddenly have a flood down there and it's actually... You know, you're going to have all these people landlocked and then there's, you know, people dying, etc. So that's where you've got to be really careful about the balance with all those things. That's so interesting, the idea. Like, you would only ever associate that one road in, one road out thing with a country town. Like, um, the bushfires down uh, in Gippsland and the town's name escapes me right now. Balacuda. Malacuda, Malacuda yeah. where they literally only had one road in and yeah, one road absolutely. out. Absolutely. You associate that with the country. You don't associate it with a city like Melbourne, you know, with Fisherman's Bends, and that's the sort of stuff that you've got to plan for. Exactly. It's, it's low level down there, is it? Yeah, well, exactly. So, you know, Fisherman's Bend essentially was old swampland, yeah. and then it was recovered. Um, you know, it was actually Melbourne's first real airfield, um, which was uh, during World War Two, where they had a lot of the... Um, the flights going into there and then they'd go mm-hmm. into the city and then it moved out to Essendon and you know, where they were doing a lot of the work there and then it became Tullamarine after that. I had a, you know, six years at Melbourne Airport, so the idea of you know, knowing where all the airfields were and what they were, but they actually that whole area was swamp. Yep. And so as swamp, you can only go off and put so many things up there to go off and raise the level. Mm. Um, you know, some of the people that are doing best work in this area are the Dutch because... Essentially, they, they, had, <laughs> they had no country. Or, or, or um, it's all canals. below sea level. Well, well they've got a lot of dikes. <laughs> well, you know, the, the, I'll the, leave that one alone. The Dutch, yeah. the Dutch did no, that's the, what they call the, you know, the canals. They call them dikes, don't yeah. they? The Dutch, um, that's right, yeah. the Dutch built um, the, the Wall Street in New York. Yeah, that yep. whole area there, they actually recovered all that land back in the day. It was a wall. Um, so uh, earlier we, we mentioned the concept of ideology and statistics. So one, who's the, the assumptions that we put into... A statistical analysis. There's aspects of that that are um, factual, and aspects that you you might contribute because of your ideology as well. And then what you do with that information 
can also then have an aspect of ideology. So how, how do we how do we get to a place where we say, well, you know what, this is quite definitive, and you either do or you don't, and then it's and then it's the concept of like whether you're prepared to um, deal with the, the facts that are with us, and let me and and for, for for someone to be able to clearly explain this is what's going to to happen because of robust information. Yeah. How, how do you do that both on a political and a you know a development perspective? Well, that's a really good question on the political and development perspective. Um, political one we tend not to have many control over. This is where you've got to work with the bureaucracy quite often and what you have to there from there. Um, then ascertain exactly uh, how do you provide that information on a basis that can actually provide guidance. One of the ways we've actually done that now is not just looking at sort of the value outcomes but start looking at what the jobs outcomes are simultaneously, what the actual value on the what we call the natural capital, like the environment around it, the social capital in terms of social outcomes and looking at those collectively. So it's very hard for a lot of politicians to be able to then just go back and say, oh, I want to do that for that community or this one for that, when you've actually got that confluence of all of those together. But in terms of some of those things, in terms of the base statistics, there's a number of areas that... Um, and Victorian government's done a significant job at the moment in terms of having a lot of open data. Um, so there's a raft of information around what the population growth is going to be per every area. I had a friend of mine the other day at density, dwellings, um, zoning, etc., um, a friend of mine the other day, he said, oh, I've got a mate that he's got a property down in an area of Melbourne. I won't say where. Um, you know, it was a large scale. Oh, <laughs> Excuse me. Um, I just said it when I coughed, so that's all right. Mm-hmm. Uh, anyway, and so he was saying, oh, so what, what do you think should happen to that area? And I said, okay, well, when I broke it down to, okay, well, this is the population you get from this part of government. This is where the density you can get. This is the type of zoning you can get. This is the type of infrastructure growth you can get. This is the type of transport uh, outcomes. Vic Roads have got online a number of vehicles that are going through per day. You can actually see the changes occurring per council. And, you know, you can go on to planning online to understand what the planning zoning is, how that's actually changed over that area. He sort of said, oh, when you actually chunk it down to all those different components, I can make a logical outcome. Um, and so the key thing that we actually find is that the assumptions are the most critical things. You know, getting to the base of those assumptions makes a massive difference. I mean... I couldn't believe it. I was dealing with uh, an unknown, unnamed organisation, a very large consultancy group that I used to be a part of. And one of the economists... You just narrowed it down nicely. I did. I did. You can look at my LinkedIn page. I did it on purpose. Um, one of the economists said to me, oh, we've got all these... We know what bus patronage is in this group. And I said, great. How did you do that? And said, oh, well, uh, there was a study that was done and it was one afternoon in Adelaide and we used these particular calculations for all bus patronage. And I went, we're in Melbourne. They said, yeah, but it's the same. I said, no, it's not. It's a total different city. It's a total different transport system. They've got trains that don't run anywhere like ours. Oh, yeah, but it's, we don't care about that because it's just a top-down approach. We just want to know what it means to the state. So the assumptions are critical in terms of that. So I've been re-watching uh, Utopia, which is obviously <laughs> a, uh, a satire based around governments and their relationships with their departments and those sorts of things. And uh, through my experience, obviously, I mean, it's it's elevated because it's satire, but through my experience, it's pretty spot on in a lot of ways. You deal with advising bureaucracy and advising, therefore, government. How do you deal with that short-sightedness of the political cycle when you're talking about stuff that has to be done, you know, over 40, 50, 80 years. Yeah, look, I mean, it's interesting because I was working with the government. When the first series of Utopia came out, we were actually working with one of the government departments who 
absolutely believed it was actually a mockumentary. <laughs> and a lot of the actual storylines, I'm not a, I'm not diverting the question, I'll get back yeah. to that, but a lot of the storylines were actually what happened in their executive meetings two weeks ago. <laughs> <laughs> and they're going, oh, my God, that was so that, that's about that person and that person, that person. And you go, yeah. oh, my God. And, it, like, literally it was a, you know, they called it a documentary. Yeah. And um, But, look, in terms of the uh, short-sightedness, you're always going to have a little bit of that, okay? So, for instance, at the moment, a lot of the work that's being announced in regards to um, support for the Australian community for resilient infrastructure, um, some of it's going to have um, a directed nature to certain areas and you can't actually do much about that. But, you know, there's a need set, which is, you know, certain properties have to have that you know, support. But then it becomes, okay, you move that into what could happen in a community and that's you can actually then have a lot more robustness about what actually happens there. So then to the councils and others, um, there's always going to be an element in terms of where political advisors will be able, want to be able to then say, oh, we want to be able to help out this area, that area. Um, the key thing in this case is to be able to have those robust frameworks and that's what we've been doing a lot of work on. So, for instance, there's we did a lot of work um, helping to write the policy on a thing called the Value Creation and Capture Framework in Victoria. There wasn't a policy about that and we worked with the Department of Prime Minister, Premier and Cabinet and also Department of Treasury over a long period of time and this was a community, well, our view of community support, which was where a lot of different uh, areas were actually focusing on their own mechanisms and their own charges and all that. How can we system systematise it so it actually becomes a uniform piece where instead of someone saying, oh, I'm just going to build that and not care about what happens, which is the political environment, they actually have to start understanding the long-term impact and that's now become part of the business case process in Victoria and federal government's picked it up. There's going to be a lot of other people. We now know it's part of what we call uh, resilience prioritisation for Australia and also now part of what is called the National Disaster Risk and Recovery Procedures, which is a, a major change. So instead of looking just at economic change, it's about value at risk and value potential. And that's how you can start getting away from a lot of those political outcomes. We started our conversation on, on COVID and we are running rapidly out of time, but I wanted to ask you, from a, a long-term infrastructure perspective, what do you think, if there are going to be any, uh, might be some of the impacts of COVID on the way that we live our lives and, and the way that our cities are designed and, you know, what needs to be developed into the future? Do you think that it's going to have a long-term impact like that? You know, we were talking about people not going back to the office, for the example. CBD, yeah. yeah. People are going to yeah. go back there and have coffees. Yeah, yeah look, I mean, it is – would you like another episode yeah. to talk about it? Um, <laughs> You know, one of the ways in which you look at this is there was you know, a simple way to think about it, right? So the number of people that were actually per office, uh, you know, uh, square metres per person, employee, was actually rapidly diminishing as we saw over time. And we were getting down to the stage in certain offices prior to COVID of about nine per square metre. Well, now that's actually reversed again. And so the question becomes how soon before you can have a number of people close to each other? When I'm talking about there were a lot of people in very close proximity to each other. Um, so you're going to find that that will expand out, but then that will also come back and contract again. It all depends how many pandemics come along the way. Mm. Um, but that has an impact on the number of jobs you're going to get per commercial office. Um, the issue in the cities at the moment is actually a frightful one. I was talking with a number of people in the city, senior people in the city of Melbourne. Um, the city is really bereft and it really is incumbent on um, all governments. So, for instance, uh, in Victoria, we're trying to get our people back in the city. Um, there are 45,000 public servants that need to be back in the city. But as you said before, you know, there's a lot of people that actually now don't want to be back in the city and they want to have that flexibility. You know, we're trying to look at how to go to a four-day week. 
um, you know, whether it's going to be 36 hours, 34 hours, 32 hours, whichever it is. And do that is to be allow some people to be able to then go off and do their own creative outlets or, you know, do another job. You know, we've got one of our staff is um, she's actually an interpreter and does Japanese and Kore- no, Korean, sorry, my apologies. And, you know, she wants to be able to do that one day a week, four days a week of work. And she thought she'd have to be part-time, but now she'll probably move into a full-time role. Um, you know, these are the sort of areas in which you see change. But in terms of physical infrastructure, the issue is going to be what actually happens on public transport. I mean, masks are an inherent differentiator that allow us to be able to uh, diminish the amount, you know, keep the density, but diminish the interaction. Um, you know, how many people have gone through Singapore and Hong Kong and other places like that where they see multitude of people wearing masks in this flu season? So my personal thought is just on that. I think the masks are going to be here state for a long, long time. And the masks are going to be a potential... Um, they're going to allow us not to be able to have that major a change in infrastructure. because. But we, we're going to have to get used to them, um, re- regardless if we like them or not. Um, during flu season, my God, they make a difference. Mm. And, you know, in the offices, how many times do you remember, oh, you're not tough enough. Come in when you're sick. Come in when you're sick, you know. Soldier on. Soldier on. And uh, But now it's going to be literally you either stay home or if you have, you've got to wear a mask if you have to be in. And so that's actually going to allow us to be able to move back to a lot of those density limits. Um, we really want to see those, you know, the sort of people come back to cities. Sadly, we have run out of time, uh, John. But you're right; we could do a whole nother, uh, whole nother episode <laughs> episode on on how the COVID is um, is going to uh, impact the world well long into the future. But um, we have sadly run out of time, which means we have to farewell you, John Marinopoulos. Thank you so much for joining us. I greatly appreciate it. Thank you. It's been an absolute eye-opener as to what might happen going into the future. We're going to take a quick break and we'll be back to wrap it up on Bamiyaka Fair. We have reached the end of another episode of Bamiyaka Fair here on 3XY Radio Elas. And uh, don't forget, you can catch up on the show and all the past episodes on the podcast, which is available via Spotify. And iTunes, we are very grateful to John Marinopoulos, statistician and consultant, uh, for joining us on today's show. Um, of course, we have to say our thanks to all of the people who make the show possible, uh, including 3XY at Adio Last Haki, of course, the Hellenic Australian Chamber of Commerce and Industry. And we mustn't wrap up uh, without mentioning that the nominations are now open for the annual Haki Awards, um, which are decided later in the year. But if you want some more information about the nominations, head to haki.com.au or the social media, which is Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn and Instagram. Uh, so I said through XY, I said Harky. Um, all of Harky's partners, uh, the Bank of Sydney, uh, Just Gold and Hellenic Power. Um, Harky can't do what it does without them. And, of course, uh, to you two gentlemen, Alex and Peter. And to you too. We, we couldn't do this without you, Tom. Oh, you, are, you are the, the um, anchor of our program. Yeah, you are the, uh, you are the cog in the wheel. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Um, as I said, there is more information about this program and all of Haki's stuff available at the website and on social media. Uh, thank you very much for listening, and until we speak to you next time, yes, yes, yes. yes.